0: Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative
1: Studies. I'm Beth. And I'm Ava. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience to psychology while talking through our own personal experiences. This week on the
0: podcast, we have a very exciting guest. I got to speak to Dr. Anil Seth, who is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex, and is also the director of the Sussex Center for Consciousness Science. And you guys might have seen his book, Being You, which is all about consciousness. Anil and I spoke about where we're at at the moment in consciousness research, what this can possibly mean for society. We spoke about AI, which was super interesting. And we also touched on why is it that the theories of consciousness have a different weight to them, to other theories within the scientific field. So, I hope you guys enjoy it.
2: I'm Anil Seth. I'm currently a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex and director of the Centre for Consciousness Science there too. So, my interest has for a long time been in understanding the biological basis of consciousness, the nature of our experiences of the world and the relationship between appearance in reality and I think above all the the nature of the self what it means to be a conscious self and my background has been very multidisciplinary ranging from physics to computer science to psychology and neuroscience and the research group at Sussex is also multidisciplinary and I think that's one of the things that's really important in consciousness science that it brings together these different disciplines to try and answer what is, after all, one of the longest standing mysteries that we face.
0: So a lot of people, when they're learning about consciousness research, they hear about this thing called the hard problem. Can you explain what that problem is?
2: The hard problem is this beautiful phrase coined by the Australian philosopher, actually, David Chalmers, now now in New York. And it's a way of crystallizing the intuition that many of us have and that's been around for a long time in history that no matter how deeply we understand the brain as a physical mechanism, a very complex physical mechanism, that understanding will never explain how and why there's any kind of conscious experience happening at all. David Chalmers puts it like this. He said, why should physical processing give rise to a rich inner life at all? It seems objectively unreasonable that it should and yet it does. So that's, that's the hard problem. I think for better or worse, it's really defined both the challenge of the field, but it's possibly also constrained the ways in which we think about it.
0: And then one of the insights that you've really contributed to the field, and this is spoken about in your book, is that we have this controlled hallucination. Can you explain a bit about what that idea is and what that means?
2: Sure. I mean, the first thing to say is it's certainly not my idea. It's not a new idea. I'm just maybe developing it in in a in a slightly different way the phrase itself was i first heard it from a guy called chris Frith who's a senior professor in london he heard it from somewhere else and we tried to track it down actually so it's got a long history but the idea is is a very old idea and it's the notion that what we experience is not a direct reflection of the world as it really objectively is is always and everywhere a construction. And if you think about the problem of perception, setting aside consciousness for a second, but this does help us understand, I think, consciousness. Just the problem of perception at a very brute force level, very blunt level, is the problem of the brain figuring out what's out there in the world or in here in the body the brain has no direct access to what's out there in the world or, or in here in the body. All it gets are electrical signals that are only indirectly related to their causes in the world and body. And from this perspective, figuring out what's there always has to be some kind of informed guesswork. The brain has to interpret these sensory signals, which are not labeled. They don't come with colors or shapes or, or sounds themselves. They're just electrical signals. The brain has to make sense of these and the claim here is that the brain doesn't do this just by reading out sensory signals rather it's the other way around the sensory signals calibrate the brain's predictions about their causes and this is the claim that this is what we consciously experience this is the connection to consciousness what we consciously experience isn't a readout sensory signals even though it might seem that way what we consciously experience are the predictions, or rather the calibrated predictions themselves. So we actively generate our worlds, we don't passively perceive them. And so here's why the term controlled hallucination is quite a good one, I think. We're all familiar with the idea of hallucinations as experiences that somehow come from within. And we tend to think of them as separate from everyday lived experience. We open our eyes and we walk around the world. So the phrase is useful because it points to continuity, right? All of our experiences are internally generated. But the control is just as important as the hallucination. So in, in normal everyday life, our brain's hallucinations are controlled by their causes in the world and the body. And that's what makes them useful.
0: So that's really cool. And I just want to clarify, but that still means that there is a real world out there. Yeah. Yeah. That- <laughs> <laughs> so there is... A reality out there we just don't have direct access to it or are there some things we do maybe have direct access to you
2: know i don't think we ever do i think i'm not even sure what it would mean to say we have direct access to the world perhaps if we're run over by a truck you know then then there's a direct connection between the solidity of the truck and you know our integrity as a as a living creature but in terms of perceptual experience i think it's always and everywhere an interpretation again it's like one of the oldest ideas in the book emmanuel kant talks yeah. about this in terms of reality always being hidden behind a sensory veil that this noumenon that we never will really know in and of itself
0: yeah it's interesting because i think intuitively when we go about the world and we're not thinking about these things i mean yeah we feel like we if and if you don't study philosophy and think about these things it really does feel like no we have direct access this is what what we have
2: but i think the critical point there is to realize that this impression of direct access is itself an aspect of conscious experience yeah right the fact that things seem real and mind independent is precisely the way you would expect evolution to have designed the way conscious perception works it would be mm-hmm. not great for us if we experienced our experiences as the constructions they really are and that's you know that sometimes happens in some psychiatric conditions now, there are conditions of derealization where experience loses that immediacy that impression of directness and, and veridicality so it's another case of taking our experiences as and, and the way they are as useful clues about the function of experience but not as a direct insight into the way things really are.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. So then something that's, I guess, kind of a hot topic at the moment, and when we're thinking about hallucinations, so what can altered states of consciousness tell us about consciousness? So, yeah, psychedelic states, dream states, these kind of other states.
2: I think this follows on very nicely. There are typically two ways people end up interpreting altered states things like psychedelic states one is that they've gained access to another they've seen a deeper truth right they've freed themselves from the shackles of everyday perception and they see the world more as it really is i think that's a misleading way to interpret them i think rather the value of psychedelics well but firstly that might be very important and useful for this particular person yeah That, that might help them in their own daily lives in in important ways. But I think from a perspective of neuroscience and philosophy, the value is not in having a more uh, direct window onto how things really are. It's, It's more about deconstructing assumptions we might make about the space of possible conscious experiences, like ego dissolution where the self can kind of dissolve and go away. If we experience that, during psychedelics, well, that can give us an insight into the necessity of certain kinds of conscious selfhood to consciousness in general. I think also there's a sense in some kind of psychedelic experiences that we do experience the way in which the brain constructs experience Mm -hmm. to some extent, and we can sort of see patterns emerging from our sensory environment in a way that just amplifies this normal process of pattern making that goes on unnoticed most of the time yeah so i think it's a very very useful tool and fundamentally of course it's a fantastic basic neuroscience tool because we intervene in the brain in a very straightforward way pharmacologically give a small amount of a particular chemical it's well known in the brain where this chemical binds to you more or less and at a, at a low level what it does and then at a experiential level there are these enormous changes And so then we can look at what happens in the middle ground, like what happens to brain dynamics, what happens to large scale patterns of brain activity. And I think for that, it's a a really powerful tool. Of course, there are other applications in the clinic and whether it will be a a good treatment for mental health conditions like depression. I think the evidence there's a little mixed. And I I think you agree. (laughs) Um, But it's certainly worth exploring. It would be a shame to go back to the bad old days where psychedelics was ostracized and excluded completely from scientific and medical research
0: yeah i think it's really important that we really understand who it will benefit and who it won't and what i get worried about is when there's hype around anything and this is like with any treatment for mental health and you just assume well that will help everyone and i think we need to be careful around that and
2: are there any good ideas about who it works for and who doesn't
0: i think we don't know because we actually don't look at that most of the research now is kind of like it's just gonna help a lot of people and we don't look at but i think it's beneficial but i think we need to be careful because i actually speak to kevin a lot in the lab the monk and um you know he's had this whole experience and that's how he became a monk and he he realized he had no sense of self and that to him was really profound but you can have that experience and and not be okay with that like that can be an experience that's really terrifying for people and they can't overcome that and i have personally have this very strong sense of self and i i hate any idea around that that's not true like the sense of beth isn't i i just can't i and then kevin's like yeah well you don't have to go there <laughs> just hold on to that maybe sense. that's where you
2: need to go yeah.
0: <laughs> so what are some of the theories of consciousness we have at the moment and what kind of they made up of
2: and there's a ton of theories now yeah. I and mean, this is one of the things that i've seen really blossom in the field over the last couple of decades and they're interestingly different so one of the challenges at the moment I think is that even among the leading group of theories which can be defined differently by different people their theories are different things they make different assumptions so they're very hard to to compare although efforts are going on to try to do exactly that. So with one of my colleagues in Melbourne, actually, Tim Bain, the New Zealand philosopher, not an Australian (laughs) philosopher, um, we wrote a review of theories of consciousness a couple of years ago and focused on four main groups because we have to make some decisions, right? So I think this extraction of four prominent groupings is just, I think I still stand by this as as reflecting how things are now. So in one, the first one are are higher order theories. So these have quite a philosophical origin, Mm And they differ, but they say something like a mental state is conscious when there's another mental state which is pointing at that first mental state in some way, in some appropriate way, with some like arrow that says you're conscious mm-hmm. mental state. So you can see why it's a philosophical yes. theory <laughs> in, in, its, in its origin. But it's also in terms of the brain, it's kind of tied up with mechanisms of metacognition, cognition about cognition. Though yeah. It's not coextensive uh, with that, but it sort of emphasizes consciousness as something that is more necessarily cognitive in, in this sense of, of higher order processing. So that's one group of theories. Very broadly, it's a kind of front of the brain theory. Consciousness yeah. is something that's more associated with stuff that happens in the front of the brain. Yeah. <laughs> then we have global workspace theory, which is probably the most widely investigated experimentally. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say this is originally a psychological theory. From bernard bars later popularized by stan de Hain, and put in a neural framework and the two core ideas here are that a mental state becomes conscious when it ignites this global workspace of distributed activity across large swathes of the brain but again including frontal areas frontal mm-hmm. and parietal areas now and perhaps others too and that this information is broadcast within these areas. So when information about a mental state or the mental state itself, depending on your interpretation, is broadcast within this workspace, then it becomes conscious. So this, again, is a kind of front of the brain theory or front and side of the brain theory. They begin to sound like variations of haircuts. And it's also more naturally a theory of conscious access rather than conscious experience per se and this is this is a this is kind of a controversial distinction but when content is broadcast in the workspace the, the reason for suggesting that's important to consciousness is because in doing so this mental state can have access to a wide array of cognitive functions as conscious states seem to do in in experiments so that's another class of theory then you have integrated information theory possibly the most provocative and controversial and ambitious of them all. Um, Impossible to summarize in any short (laughs) short compass. But among the theories, I think it's the one that addresses the hard problem the most head-on. And it starts from a very different position. Instead of saying or proposing what in the brain is necessary or sufficient for consciousness, it says, what are all conscious experiences like? In fundamental essential ways. What do they have to be like to be conscious experiences? They're integrated for instance, they're informative and then asks what kinds of physical systems could support these things or rather how does a physical system have to be in order for it to support these essential properties of of consciousness. And so it comes up with postulates that apply to mechanisms like the way mechanisms have to be and comes up with claims like wherever there are irreducible maxima of integrated information, there will be consciousness. And this is all cashed out mathematically. I think it's really provocative. It's a theory of both conscious level, like whether consciousness is present at all and conscious content, what we're conscious of. And it's a very distinctive philosophical position. It basically says things that, you know, do not integrate information, do not really exist in a certain sense. Um, but it's very hard to test directly Mm -hmm. and this is where there's been some discussion Mm -hmm. I think there are very interesting predictions that follow from it that are testable so for me it's squarely in the business of science Mm -hmm. I I think it's a really um, important part of consciousness science I think it's probably wrong but I think it's certainly very provocative so that's IIT associated with Giulio Tononi more than anyone and then finally there are a whole mishmash of theories under the banner of predictive processing re-entry this idea of controlled hallucination we've already talked about i know you work on predictive processing at monash and there's no sort of single flag carrying theory here there's there's a bundle my own ideas take predictive processing and tie it more to our you know the, the the imperative the brain has to control and regulate the physiological body so these predictions are grounded in physiological regulation Other varieties of this theory take a different perspective on it. And probably the most general articulation of these theories is something called the free energy principle, which is a very mathematical framework that is not a theory of consciousness. It's kind of a general theory of things, but you can kind of bolt theories of consciousness on top of it. And I find it appealing because it sort of links life and mind in a way that I think is potentially very important. So those are, I would say, the main classes. There are other ones. There are yeah. quantum mechanical theories of consciousness, attention schema theories of consciousness, all sorts of things. But the challenge is to figure out how we finesse these theories in ways that they can make very specific predictions with explanatory power. And ideally, they can be tested against each other. And that's, there are efforts doing that involved in one or two. But it's hard, the theories being where they are now.
0: So are there ways we can test these theories at the moment, because in other scientific fields, the way I see it is it doesn't always matter if that theory isn't right at the time, as long as we can just keep like testing it and getting more evidence to then change the theory a bit. And I know what I'm working on now won't be quote unquote correct, but I'll contribute to something that can keep moving forward. Is that the same thing that's going on in consciousness science? Is that a, a way we could look at, you know, working out this problem?
2: I think it's the right attitude to take. And I like to think that's what's going on. You can only really tell with the benefit of hindsight, these sorts of things. But in philosophy of science, probably the most well-known position is, is Karl Popper's position or some caricature of Karl Popper's position, which is that theories kind of need to be tested as a whole. And if they're not falsifiable as a whole, then they're not scientific. But this is very rarely how things work in practice. And the philosopher of science, Imre Lakatos, I think has a much more pragmatic, but also I think philosophically sensible point of view about this, which is that there's really a single theory at stake. There's often a kind of family of theories or a theoretical framework. And as long as that's evolving and generating predictions, which are testable and which have explanatory power, then we're doing all right. And there may be a core of the theory which may well remain untestable. And there are examples of this in in quantum mechanics, for instance. It generates incredibly counterintuitive predictions, which when tested turn out to stand up and it has explanatory power. But when it comes to the foundations of quantum mechanics, like many worlds or Copenhagen or relational quantum mechanics right? Nobody knows, nobody can agree what it means, and and nobody's figured out a way to test these things. But it certainly doesn't mean that quantum mechanics is itself not doing well as a science. It's probably one of our most successful um, examples of science.
0: Why do you think it is that in consciousness science, there's a there's is it it because there's so much writing on it because it's who we are that people have these more convictions to their?
2: I think so. I think there's probably something to you that. Know, like, I mean, this came up earlier in a discussion yeah. we were having at Melbourne University here that, you know, what do we want from a theory of consciousness? And it does strike me that because we ourselves are conscious, there may be some sort of subtle way where we set the bar a little bit differently. We want it to be intuitively satisfying in a way that may not be necessary and may not be really justified in, in what we ask. As long as a theory can explain things, predict yeah. things, and ideally allow us to control things, perhaps that's all we can hope for. It has to sort of line up too. You know, it has to line up with some intuitions. Yeah, right? Intuitions, a theory that said that I am not conscious right here, right now, wow. would be very hard to take seriously because it's it's failing to explain a kind of starting point. But a theory that says are conscious? No. Well, if, even if my intuition is that they're not, I mean, that's not a, an intuition to put a huge amount of credence in. Yeah. So you shouldn't arbitrate between theories on the basis of how much they line up with all of our pre-theoretical intuitions. Otherwise, we, you know, we're, we're not doing science. We're just just validating our own biases. Yeah.
0: Well, this follows from that as well because one of your ideas also is that consciousness is tied to living mm. beings and this has implications for AI and I think this is really interesting because when we think about AI becoming conscious and everything people you know are following that that's in the news a lot but then I think if you ask a lot of people about what your intuitions are about consciousness it does feel like a lot of people are like oh no it is to do with living things and I, and I feel very compelled by that as well I can't exactly articulate why. (laughs) Can you speak a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Why you think that is, and why other people think that isn't as well? It's
2: interesting what other people think about this. And I I suspect it might vary quite a lot. And I mean, there's some empirical surveys, experimental philosophy, you know, people often call it surveys of the general public and of consciousness researchers about what they think is conscious and, and what they think isn't. And opinions kind of differ. Broadly, I think you're right that we're more likely to attribute consciousness to living things than we are to computers. But certainly in the academic literature, there's a prevailing view about consciousness called computational functionalism, which is the idea that consciousness is essentially some form of computation, some form of information processing. And if you get the computations right, then you'll get consciousness. It doesn't matter whether the system is alive or not and many of the theories we were just discussing express some form of that and there's been much discussion about ai consciousness and a very influential recent report which starts off by saying we are only going to discuss theories within this Mm -hmm. remit and at least it acknowledges that's what it's doing so it's interesting i think there's going to be some dissonance between what everyday intuition might say and, and, and what we see in academia. But you know, again, how much do we trust our intuitions? I think there are some reasons to suspect computational functionalism. Our brains are not computers in, in many, I think, relevant ways. If you look in a computer, if you look for a division between hardware and software, it's usually quite easy to find because that's how computers are designed. If you look for the same distinction between mindware and wetware in a brain, you won't find it. Um, there is no sharp distinction. And on the other side of things, this idea, certainly from my way of thinking about it, the idea that the predictive machinery that underpins all our experiences has its origins and roots in regulating the body, keeping the body alive. Now, this is an imperative that doesn't stop at any particular level in the brain or body. It goes right down even into the, the level of individual cells so there's at least there's a temptation to think life is is kind of fundamental to consciousness here that, that consciousness might be something more like metabolism mm-hmm. now, where, where the stuff really matters a simulation of metabolism is is always a simulation metabolism is defined by transforming one substance into another to generate energy and it, it might be that we have just been overly suckered in by these Admittedly useful from you know, some points in history, analogy between brains and computers, that this assumption that consciousness is information processing is not being sufficiently questioned. The difficulty, back to the previous point, is how, how would one ever test mm-hmm. this? Like how would you experimentally test the hypothesis that consciousness is a property only of living Systems in for biological naturalism. I think I can't think of a way to test this, but it doesn't mean it's not a coherent position. I think it's at least useful to point out that there are some reasons to think that that might be true, and there are some reasons to think that consciousness in AI systems as we know them now is not going to happen. Because if we live in a society where we think computers are, are conscious or could be. And that, that has a lot of consequences for regulation, for ethics, for law, and for our own psychologies, how we interact with these systems.
0: Do you think that in order to know if AI is conscious, we'll need a th- to know what consciousness is? We need to know that you know one of these theories is right in order to
2: know that. To know for sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think there is a chicken and egg problem here. So really to know for sure what things are, are conscious and what things aren't well, we need to have full confidence in a, in a consensus theory of the sufficient conditions for consciousness. And, and, and we don't have that, but it doesn't mean we're totally in the dark, right? We, we can use, we have to be very careful because we can use what we know about human and mammalian consciousness to give us some indicators of what to look for while recognizing that you know, there may be other ways in which systems can be conscious. But the way I see it in general is that it's this kind of very gradual stepping out, you know, so we've got a zone of relative certainty, human beings, and we can gradually extrapolate from that and each point trying to sort of build some superstructure underneath that. So that like we can be confident that other mammals are conscious to some extent, but in a different way, then we can sort of understand, well, what are the differences between those and humans, and then we can extrapolate a little bit further out still. But when you get to AI and when you get to other difficult cases like insects or or even preterm infants, human infants, it's very, very hard.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting to think about. And also the other day when you were mentioning if we if we do think that AI are conscious, even if they're not, but the way we treat them and what that says mm-hmm. about that. And I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a big a, a important thing to think about.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's not, getting as much attention as it should because there's a sort of sci-fi draw to the question of whether machines really are conscious or not which is you know fun to think about and very important to think about as well because if they really are then of course machines have the potential to potentially suffer or maybe in a way we wouldn't even recognize but frankly there is no good answer to that problem we don't know if it might you know the possible scenarios range all the way from totally impossible to already happened yeah but when it comes to AI systems that give us the impenetrable appearance of being conscious, then you know, all our philosophical uncertainties go away. It doesn't matter. And a sufficiently well-programmed computer will give us, because of the way our minds are built and because of our anthropomorphic tendencies, give us the impression of being conscious. And that will pose a challenge because either we will learn to care about these systems because they seem conscious to us in which case we risk sacrificing human well-being in the service of these feelingless (laughs) lumps of silicon by prioritizing their interests when they shouldn't really have any interests of their own or we end up learning to not care about these things even if they do seem conscious to us and as again Kant said long ago this kind of scenario can have a brutalizing effect on our psychologies. It's very unhealthy for us to treat badly things that seem to us to suffer. So, And this is happening, right? This is yeah. not some sci-fi yeah. scenario. This is either with us already or very shortly will be. And there's no good answer to that. I think it, it means that we've really got to take this, these scenarios into account when we design yeah. AI systems. Perhaps we should not design systems so that they appear to us to be conscious. We should deliberately design them so that our relationship to them is not one of them being similar to us, but as a kind of oracle or tool or, or something else. So I think this is one of these areas where in talking to people in the tech industry, It's important to shift them, shift away from these sometimes imponderable philosophical Mm -hmm. discourses to like, no, there are actually really important implications here for how you design your next chatbot.
0: So Ava, one of the things I spoke about with Anil is the idea that consciousness has to be tied to living systems. And... I feel this strongly, and as I said, I can't completely articulate why, which I know isn't great as a scientist, but it is kind of interesting because a lot of people don't feel this. They think that, you know, AI is going to become conscious and we have to, I don't know, prepare or understand what that means. But yeah, I've always really held the belief, no, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it is tied to life, and I'm curious because I feel like this intuition I have maybe a classic Beth thing. I'm curious what you think about that issue.
1: First, I do think that consciousness is definitely tied to life. So I do believe that to be alive, you need consciousness. So I think the causality works that way. So wait, to (laughs) be alive, you have to be conscious. Yeah. Okay. I think definitely mammals, even fish, like anything that's kind of moving around and that needs to do something to survive, I think that there's sentience there. So, a certain consciousness in the sense of there is an awareness of what's around that organism. And as in the What's It Like to Be a Bat, the Thomas Nagel paper, there's probably a sense of like what it's like to be that animal on some level. And then I do think this is like my pet consciousness theory, but I do think that then the higher order kind of consciousness of being able to reflect on your own experiences. I think that that also developed out of our human social world. So I think the fact that threats in the environment and rewards in the environment went from being avoiding a predator or trying to find food somewhere and scavenge for food. That went from looking for that in the environment to finding it in other people because we rely so much on each other. And let's be honest, like in the wild, none of us would make it. I have no skills. I have a very specific set of things <laughs> that I could do. I don't think I would make it. We're just so dependent on each other for everything. And I think that because of that, the threats and rewards in our environment are really in other people, right? Like it's in getting food on the table is your relationship with your boss or your relationship with your colleagues. It's not about scavenging. And so I think that because of that, we had to learn a lot of higher order thought in that you had to be able to do all these like really difficult calculations. Like If I do this, then this person's going to think this of me. And then they might do this, which might lead me to do this. So, all of this higher order kind of back and forth. So, I think that consciousness necessarily developed for humans because of the way that we evolved. So, I guess that kind of addresses your first point of like they're linked. I definitely believe that. But I don't think it necessarily means that AI could not be conscious because I do think we kind of have to accept that if something is convincing us that it's, conscious, if it looks like it's conscious, if it's acting like it's conscious, then who are we to say it's not, right? That's kind of just like solipsism. And with AI, it's just, it's disturbing to reflect on because I was an undergrad not that long ago, like maybe five years ago. And at that point, you know, we were writing essays about the Turing test, about this idea of if A machine is able to convince you that it's conscious or like fool a certain percentage of people into thinking that it's conscious within, I don't know, a 30-minute conversation. Then who are we to say that it's not conscious? And at that point, it was so far away from that being true. I think there was one robot that had kind of passed the Turing test, but it was pretending to be a 12-year-old Russian kid. And that was why they had like all these kind of lacunae in their pop culture knowledge or other general knowledge, which I think was feeding more off of like humans being more gullible than actually convincing someone that you're conscious. But now, ChatGPT, we've just blown past that question suddenly. What if something is just designed to appear conscious,
0: convince people? Like what if it's just programmed to do that? So what if I know the things that will convince some someone that something's conscious mm-hmm. and then I create an AI agent just to do those things, because I know that's how I'll convince
1: people. Like, What about that scenario? I think that's more difficult than it seems, is the thing. And I think pre-ChatGPT, there was that kind of thought experiment of like, this is something that could happen, that someone could create an agent that would convince us of this and essentially pass the Turing test. But people had tried for so long and it was impossible. And then suddenly, ChatGPT has done that. And I think a lot of people argue that it's not conscious. And I do have the intuition that it's not conscious, but it just feels like we're moving the goalpost every time. Because several decades ago, it was, it will be a conscious system if this system can play chess and beat a grandmaster. Then we realized that was extremely algorithmic. And that's kind of where we were, right? Of thinking that the algorithms were how we could really get to what consciousness was. And then once we beat chess, it was like, oh, that's not really conscious. And then it was go. And now it's, the Turing test, um, hmm. and I think we keep moving the goalposts, but who are we to say that it's not conscious, we can't access it, right? And that's kind of maybe getting to the hard problem, but I don't know, I feel pretty agnostic about it because you're conscious in the same way that I see that ChatGPT is conscious, you know? And I what? think ChatGPT, <laughs> because ChatGPT <laughs> makes makes mistakes in ways that are like humanly fallible a lot of the time. Like a human could guide you into the wrong place too. So I think it's hard to articulate why this system shouldn't be conscious, even though we have the intuition that it's not. But I don't know what the experience of being chat GPT is. We we can't tell if there is an experience, like a subjective experience of being chat GPT,
2: even okay, though it's just predictive I...
1: processing. Aren't you a predictive processing girly? Are <laughs> <laughs> uh, you a predictive
0: processing girly? <laughs> uh,
1: okay, well, this might be rogue, but
0: one of my... Feelings about it has to be tied to living systems. Is I feel like I so quickly go to speaking about souls, (laughs) but I just feel that one of the things that if you lose someone and when someone dies and it's very clear that their consciousness has gone and there's something about that, I mean, obviously that experience that really cements to you like what someone is. I don't know. And then I think with these AI systems, how does that apply? So they'll just be conscious forever if you maintain the hardware. Like, How does that work? Because that seems a very important part of experience and life and consciousness is death. And I always think, so chat GPT is just going to have experiences as, as long as the computers keep being maintained.
1: So is it really death that you feel like makes for consciousness, like the knowledge that your life as you know it is going to cease to exist and that kind of desire to survive.
0: No, I think it's the knowing of people that you love and when they go. Someone was there and then they're not and that feels like that the consciousness and then not and then I feel like it's that difference. And then I wonder with these AI systems how can we compare that? I don't know, maybe that's just a weird feeling that I have and no one else does and it's a silly feeling, but that feels like very a big part of consciousness.
1: I think the intuition definitely makes sense, but I also think In terms of your question of like, what if I could just trick someone into feeling like there was a soul in this machine or whatever, Mm -hmm. like in the movie Her. Have you seen that movie? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a situation where this person felt like there was a soul attached to this AI that he was building a relationship with and then she disappeared. And then a huge part of that was that he Mm -hmm. felt like her soul was gone, right? And that was still a situation where you were like, okay, I still understand that that was AI. And right now, I think the chatbots are very much limited in their capabilities to make it feel like they are creating that at least an illusion of a soul. It's very on purpose, although I know there are a lot of companies working on getting these AI bots to have these personalities and people are paying money to chat with people based on some celebrity's online persona. So I feel like if that illusion could be created, it's really just the illusion of the soul that you're looking for at that point, right? (laughs) Oh,
0: you know what that just made me think of? Two nights ago, I watched Terminator 2 and it literally changed my life. It was the best thing I've ever watched. (laughs) Have you seen it? No. It's amazing. For all of you guys who have it, like, best movie of all time, I now understand why people are yelling about film being dead because it's incredible.
1: Like the I'll Be Back movie, yeah, yeah,
0: it is so good. Like changed my life, changed how I see film, changed how I see everything. Okay, say more. Okay. <laughs> well, first of all, it's very, very cool. And anyway, but in terms of why it's related to this, is what's interesting is Arnie, who's Terminator. Arnie is a rope.
1: Yeah. Is that is his name ra- in the film, or that's just how no, you're calling Arnold no, Schwarzenegger? That's just how I, okay, that's how I refer. You're me. on the Arnie basis. I see. Okay. <laughs> He is
0: the Terminator. This isn't giving anything away, Ava, don't worry. But he's a robot and he forms this relationship with John. And it's funny because you go through this experience and you know he's a robot, so you know he's not conscious, I guess. But it... (laughs) But I was, like, yelling at this TV, like, he's learned to love, he's learned to love, he can feel love now. (laughs) And it was really interesting because you feel so close and connected to the Terminator as if it is conscious. And I feel like that I had
1: definitely the experience of feeling confused. Okay, but, I mean, to take your side on this, to be fair, that was a movie. (laughs) And, like... (laughs) You know, there's like Marcel the snail or whatever that thing is called. You know, Marcel like there's the
0: show is Shell with shoes. Shell,
1: yeah. <laughs> okay, exactly. But I mean, there's the Lion King, like, you know, there right. the storytellers make us fall in love with lots of things that are inanimate objects, straight up, like cars, too. That's a movie about cars, you know? But I do think that your point illustrates the fact that, like, for you, if you're seeing, this situation where you're convinced this was a robot, and I don't believe that a robot could actually be conscious in the same way, but then you're seeing an example of it and you're convinced. I think that's all it would take too for you to. <laughs> yeah. I think we they just need to work on the illusion more. And i I think ChatGPT could probably do it if they took the reins off it at this point.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I think you need to watch Terminator Two and let me know
1: how you feel about. Okay. <laughs> I'll do that, I'll do that. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I have no problem accepting that Arnie is, has learned to love. So I'll <laughs> yeah, totally be like, on board. Is that, is that consciousness? But why not? Yeah, I know. And then I get confused. Yeah. Because I think all of the AI movies, like Ex Machina, I just really feel like if a person can convince me that they're sentient, if people believe that they're dogs... Sorry, I'm not mm. a, I'm not so much with the mammals that aren't human, but like, you know, people really are like, my dog has a soul. My dog is in there. He loves me. And I believe that the dogs love love their owners. But why should I think that about a dog and not about an A.I. that's able to convince me with their words that they have a memory, they understand our relationship what if you build a relationship with an AI? Like, what is a relationship, but history between the two of you, conversations that you had, things that they're saying, things that you're saying, and then a mutual construction of a dialogue and a way of interacting with each other.
0: Is that all a relationship is?
1: <laughs> is it not? In, in 20 years, I'm sure you're gonna have a great friend who's gonna be an AI. Sure. Bet you money. November 22nd, 2023, I said it first. You're gonna love an AI within 20 years. since you've started in
0: your research, have there been any studies that have really changed the way or like stood out to you to give you more insight into consciousness? Like anything that had a really big impact on you?
2: It's, that's a good question. I mean, there's been a lot of progress. So one of of the things that I do think about a lot is because we still don't have the ultimate answer, it's sometimes easy to be a bit pessimistic. But if I think about, what was going on 20 years ago, what's going on now, there's an awful lot of insight. And the problem to me, I think, looks very different than it looked 20 years ago. So that's good considering how long this has been an imponderable mystery, that there has been progress. And there's been many studies, I think, that have changed the way I think, shed light on things. It's very hard to pick anyone in in particular. (laughs) But, but one I'll mention, which I think is useful because it shows that consciousness is not just this armchair exercise that we do for our own existential satisfaction. There's a, there was a study by a Marcello Massimini and colleagues about 10 years ago now using transcranial magnetic stimulation. So you inject a pulse of energy into the brain and then you listen to its echo with EEG. And you can kind of compute how complicated the echo is. And this method has been shown to be very useful in diagnosing whether people with severe brain damage have still residual levels of consciousness even if they can't say anything or behave in any voluntary way their brain dynamics reveal a latent consciousness and i think this is extraordinary actually because it shows that consciousness science can be very very useful in life and death decisions even without a full understanding a full answer to the problem a partial answer is still extremely useful
0: yeah i like that a lot because so i think yeah when we're thinking about why we're interested in consciousness and yeah it isn't just for our own self-satisfaction of working out who we are but these kind of things that we can actually help people with especially in in medicine yeah and then yeah
2: which returns to the psychedelics again doesn't yeah, it so exactly. a perspective here i think is really important so it's just not just a pharmaceutical intervention it's an experiential intervention
0: yeah um well this has been amazing so thank you so much if you just want to finish by sharing anything you're excited about coming up next or what what's new
2: well i mean back in my my group at sussex there's a couple of things that we're working on that i'm excited about one is this idea of perceptual diversity so one implication of perception as a kind of controlled hallucination is that we each experience the world in a different way. Now, there's always been this, well, not always, but since the 90s, we've had this concept of neurodiversity, which is intended to apply to everybody, but in practice has become mostly associated with specific conditions like autism and ADHD. And I think ironically, that tends to reinforce the notion that if you're not a neurodivergent person, then you're neurotypical and you see things as they are. So I've been talking more about perceptual diversity just because I don't want people to make this assumption. And because I think it's really important to characterize perceptual diversity in, if you like, this middle ground, this middle region of neurotypicality. I think it's interesting, firstly, just what does it look like? It seems to us we see things as they are, so it's natural to assume that other people have the same or a very, very similar experience. And I'm sure experiences are going to be somewhat similar, but how much? So we have this project called the Perception Census, which is investigating this. And I mean, we're recording this in, in late October. So we're finishing data collection at the end of October, and then we'll be on to, to analyzing it. I think there's a social implication to all this too, that bending in a wider recognition that our way of seeing, each of our individual ways of seeing is just one way, can cultivate a bit of humility about our own perceptual takes on the world, and perhaps also our beliefs that we have too. So I think almost as an exercise for building platforms of empathy and communication, this can be quite useful, independent of its scientific interest in mapping this space out. So that's one area I'm very interested in. Another area is a bit related to the psychedelics. So we we actually had this big art science project last year called Dream Machine, where we used stroboscopic light to induce visual hallucinations in around about 40,000 people throughout the UK in collective settings last year, which was a huge amount of fun, but also I think hopefully sowed some seeds for people who'd never really thought about consciousness or perception or neuroscience to get interested in this. And it also turns out, anecdotally and i underline anecdotally to have been very beneficial for some people in terms of mental health so we are currently exploring the potential for this kind of stroboscopic light as something that might complement psychedelics as a treatment for mental health conditions it induces an experiential change but it's you know, much more accessible also legal which yes. kind of helps <laughs> and and well and easily controllable it's not as dramatically self-transformative but perhaps doesn't need to be in order to do some good so there's a whole bunch of other things as well back to where we started that and one of the, the really ever compelling things about this field is its breadth and one of the things that continues to motivate me is the horizons keep expanding rather than contracting and I think that's why I'm still going to be doing this in another 20 or 30 years.
0: That's a very beautiful note to finish on. Because another thing that I've really loved about your visit is the hope surrounded in your research. It's just been nice to have someone researching and doing all this amazing work, but it just comes with all this hope for the future. So I've really appreciated that.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you. That, That means a lot.
1: Thank you to Dr. Anil Seth for joining us this episode. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glassio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher. She's the Australian one. And me, Ava Madisouza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. But in the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on MindsMatterPodcast.com. Sit